Welcome to the Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bodies that haunt Hollywood and try to find out why they went to their graves. This week, tell them we're coming and hell is coming with us. This is Event Horizon. <laughs> Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Shutter account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a demon with horns and bat wings and summonings about movies. Movies like Event Horizon, which we're talking about today. On the horizon for us. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to dig into this. But before we do, Ian, how are you this week? Well, you know what? We are up to our necks in Blasttober. That's right. We're deep in the thick of the soup. I've been watching nothing but grisly horror movies for several <laughs> weeks now. And the good news is I have not gouged out my eyes or become the willing servant of a transdimensional evil. So that's a win, I would say. Well, that's always good. Definitely in the plus column. I put up some Halloween decorations today, so I'm getting in the spirit. Oh, cool. Pun intended. I don't know if you guys can hear it. I'm raspier than normal. I'm getting over a cold, but I'm on the mend, getting back in the groove. That's good. I'm a huge baby when I'm sick. I talk about it constantly. It's a stereotypical like man thing, but I live up to it to a T. I really go through it when I'm sick. It sucks being sick. I'm glad to hear you're on the downslope. Yeah. Wait, is that the right slope to be on? You're on the up. Wait. Upslopes are hard, and yet they take you somewhere Higher, if you so gave me the know. option, do you want to go up a slope or down a slope? I would always say down because yeah. smooth sailing. You don't have to exert yourself. We'll call it the down slope. We're lazy. We like that. Unless the bottom of that slope is, is in hell. <laughs> Which is where the cast of this week's movie were ending up. Well, hell isn't really an up or down thing, as we found out in this movie. It's more of a here or there thing. That's kind of a through, maybe? More on that later. Before we get into (laughs) that, did you watch anything this week that you thought was interesting you wanted to to bring to the Blastoids? I watched a little something, a new movie by the name of Old. Something I know you've seen. I don't want to spoil it because it's still not widely streaming yet. No. But I will give this hint. Everyone knows that the beach makes you old. But what I didn't know is that the movie makes you mad. I did not like this movie. I came away thinking that uh, M. Night Shyamalan is a big, dumb idiot. (laughs) And uh, this reinforced my worst opinions of him. I don't know if it was that bad, but when I watched it, everything about this movie pissed me off. I came away believing that he has no idea how people talk, no idea how people act, especially no idea how long people can hold their breath underwater. He's still clueless about that, which we saw. That was a major gripe of Our Lady in the Water episode. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Dialogue's never been his strong suit. Oh man, it is not strong. And then, not to spoil it, as I keep saying, puts us through all this shit. And then in the end, there's, I don't know, it's a twist. There's a premise that is revealed. There's some mystery that is revealed. And I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense. It actually doesn't work. It doesn't explain the thing that it thinks it explains. I was not happy. Yeah, I think it's easy sometimes with M. Night movies to get caught up in the twist. Because everyone talks about the twist with an M. Night movie. It's always the first thing that Uh comes up. Yeah. But he has some movies that I would say are not really twisty. But this one, I I would say is. I think this qualifies as a twist. And I agree. It's not one that works, in my opinion. But you're saying more on the logical level, it doesn't even work. It's not a twist where everything takes on a big new meaning. Like everything has kind of the same meaning, but there's a little more behind it all. It just didn't, as a sci-fi horror premise, just the logic of it didn't work. And we're talking around it because we don't want to talk about the actual It's tough to get into any specifics. (laughs) I just checked. Unfortunately, it did not bomb. It made good money, so we won't be able to get into it too in-depth on the podcast. I know. He's being rewarded for his bad behavior again. I still can't believe it. I thought Lady in the Water was his low point. And when we did that episode, I went back, I watched Sixth Sense. I'm like, damn, this guy is actually good. And now I'm like, he didn't write Sixth Sense. That wasn't him. Somebody, Let's be clear. On. Lady in the Water is still his low point. <laughs> compared to I'm not saying this is worse. This is not worse. This has some fun stuff. It has a spooky premise and then it plays out in fun, scary ways. Yeah. Good effects. Good body horror. Uh, yeah. Some, some- there's some good jolts and some stylish shots. But yeah, the dumbness overcame it for me. Yeah. That's kind of kind of leads into my movie. I wouldn't say the okay. dumbness overcame me, but I finally got around to watching The Trial of the Chicago 7. Oh, um, interesting. I had not caught yet, but uh, it had a cast that I was really into, a lot of the actors. And I've been a fan of Sorkin's stuff 
in the past, but I think I'm starting to realize I don't like him as a director. I like him more as a writer. Mm -hmm. I think he needs to be filtered through another person before we get his words because his scripts are just a little too much of nobody talks like that. People aren't this smart and this quick and Uh this witty in real life. I enjoyed the newsroom when it aired at face value because I like watching smart people say smart things, but the seams are really starting to show on his method of making a movie where the villains are just a little too broad and cartoonish for a real world drama. There's no layers to it. It's way too obvious who we're supposed Uh to be rooting for all the time. And it's just, it's very preachy. Okay. And I don't know. I I thought this is a very interesting story that deserves to be told. I think an Aaron Sorkin screenplay directed by a different director could have been a great take on it. Yeah. But I think it missed the mark. I just think he has nobody to check his worst tendencies when he's manning both those jobs. Yeah. Preachy is a bad thing to get into when you're doing contemporary or recent historical work of social import. Give us something that feels real. Don't give us something that feels feels like a finger wagging. And it's a shame because it's such an interesting story. Again, the cast is phenomenal. It's worth watching just for all that alone. It looks good. A period piece always has a little extra visual flair for me. And it's a story I wasn't as familiar with as I should have been. So I learned some things, but then I went and read up on the case after the fact. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's other ways they could have presented this material that maybe would have made for a better movie. Yeah. So that's that. But all right. Yeah. A couple duds. A couple disappointments in the show and tell this week. Let's get into the movie of the week, Event Horizon. Yes. Ian, I got to know, this doesn't feel like an Ian movie out the gate. So did you have any knowledge about this movie? Were you aware of it? Had you seen it? Just a bare little bit of awareness. I remember hearing about it. It sounded too scary. I think maybe if I had known at the time that it had such Stephen King vibes, I might have given it a shot, but also maybe not because I just don't watch a lot of horror movies. But I do like Stephen King. I've read a lot of Stephen King. And somehow when I imagine a scary movie, it's like unbelievably scary beyond anything anyone's ever written. And once I hear the concept, I'm like, oh, that's not that scary. I can deal with it. And this is one where it's got the kind of horror that I like, you know, unimaginable evil people possibly interacting with hell itself. And it's fun. It's got some fun stuff in it. And it's a spooky haunted house in space. So yeah, you say Stephen King. And I think one thing that keeps coming up if you read about this movie, or I'm sure Paul W.S. Anderson said it at some point as he wanted to make something like The Shining in space, which I think this movie achieves. It, It definitely is different than The Shining. It's way gorier. The Shining is not a bloody movie if you go back and watch it. I mean, there is a lot of blood, literally, because an elevator is full of it at one point. Right. But in terms of viscera, there's just not a lot of violence in The Shining until the very end. It has a few like static, horrifying images, but they're brief. There's none of the bloodletting that happens in this movie. Yeah, this movie leans into the violence that comes along with that concept. I don't know when I first saw this movie. It definitely was not in theaters because I was like, 10 years old when this came out and mm-hmm. no way was I going to see this in the theaters at 10. I It had to be like in my teens, like 16, 17, maybe I saw okay. it for the first time and I really enjoyed it. I think I got I had it on VHS that I got from a yard sale. Nice. Wish I still had that VHS tape somewhere, but yeah, watched it, I think by myself the first time and then with friends and I've probably oh. seen it three or four times over the course of my life, but I, it always sticks with me. It's a movie that has some very memorable visuals to say the least yeah. and some really cool performances. It's not perfect by any means. And I think we'll get into some of the reasons why some of them are out of the filmmaker's hands, unfortunately, and some of them are of his own making, Mm -hmm. but just a really well-made haunted house movie in space and subverting the expectations for what that might mean is why the movie is so successful, which we can dive into a little more when we start talking about the meat of the story. Yeah, it's fun. If you like spooky, scary stuff, it comes right at you with it in a neat way. You look at it and you go, I'm watching a sci-fi movie, but everything it does tells you this is a haunted house ghost story. This is a spooky story about a man who trifles with opening portals into other dimensions and pays the price. And it tells you that clearly. And so it's fun to discover that about it, which you learn early on. And we'll talk about how the story unfolds. But it's very direct about what it is for a movie that could otherwise be very confusing because you're waiting to see aliens pop up and there's none of that. It's just a haunted house in space. People talk about this movie as if it's the most shocking, horrific movie you've ever seen. And I think part of that is the setting because there's a few ways, you know, horror movies on a spaceship are not new. They weren't even new when this movie came out, but there's a few different ways you go with it. You go with 
big monster, huh. something with tentacles or a big tail and a weird double tongue, like a xenomorph. Or you go with like HAL 9000, right. you know, a computer gone crazy, taken over the ship. You don't usually do it with this kind of supernatural, almost borderline Lovecraftian or even religious horror yeah. that this movie plays with. Your mind is not ready to go there. And then the movie throws it all at you and it's, oh, like it's a little jarring. And I think it manages to surprise you, even though, you know, you could say this movie borrows liberally from other horror movies, but it puts enough of an original spin on it to still take you by surprise. Yeah, I'm reliving that impression that it makes on you because it starts with some really rich sci-fi visuals, right? There's a shot of a space station that is just state-of-the-art for 1997. And you go, this is going to be a really good-looking space movie. And they spent a lot of time on the ships and the atmosphere. And they did all that in service of a gothic, you know, possession haunting story. If it, yeah, it feels almost unnecessary, but that's why it's so cool. Because not a lot of movies would take that extra step to make it, you know, so atmospheric. Yeah, major cool points. The, the movie definitely charmed me very quickly. So there is kind of an interesting story to how this movie got made and released. Do you want me to dive into the specifics of that? Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So in 1994, after having only made one small budget crime drama called Shopping, Paul W.S. Anderson was given an $18 million budget to make a film based on the smash hit fighting game Mortal Kombat. Anderson produced a halfway decent movie that was his big success, making over $120 million and giving him plenty of options for what to do next. Flawless victory. He turned down the chance to direct a Mortal Kombat sequel, which would eventually become the absolute dog shit box office disappointment, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Fatality. And in a move that might have changed the course of movie history in a huge way, also declined to direct the first X-Men movie. What's your superpower, missing the boat? He said he wanted to do something darker, more violent, definitely R-rated, and he found his project in a script written by Philip Eisner called Event Horizon. Anderson rewrote large portions of the script to fit his vision of The Shining in space and secured a $60 million budget for the film, casting big names Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne in the lead roles. Filming began in November 1996 and was finished in March 1997, but there was trouble ahead for the production. Most filmmakers are given a 10-week period to edit their movies, but Paramount Pictures was getting nervous with the myriad delays and production troubles played James Cameron's Titanic, which they had hoped would be their big hit of the summer. I guess they had a sinking feeling. They pressured Anderson to edit the movie in six weeks to secure an August release, but a second unit filming was still ongoing. He was really given only four weeks to complete the edit. Anderson would turn in a 130-minute cut of the film that was so gruesome, some audience members at test screens reportedly fainted. At the studio's urging, Anderson cut almost 40 minutes from the movie, including a majority of the violence, which is pretty incredible considering how gory the movie still is. You can see all the cuts they made into Sam Neill's naked flesh. Released on August 15, 1997, Event Horizon received negative reviews and was a massive flop, earning only $42 million against its $60 million budget. Even so, like so many horror films before it, fans found Event Horizon on home media and it earned a large and loyal cult following that persists to this day. They're still out there, and now I'm among them. I have been... You've been converted. I've been converted. I've been assimilated. I have been transported via gravity... What, what is it called? Ah, shit, I gravity drive. That. Gravity drive. Yeah, the I fucking mean, Hellraiser box. Gravity drive. It's wild. <laughs> Why does it look like that? The whole shit, everything in the ship is like, who designed this shit? What kind of creepy people are working at NASA in the year? HR Geiger was just, you know, he got into fucking <laughs> spaceship engineering at some point in his life. They stopped hiring nerds at NASA and they started hiring creepy goths. And that's the kind of ships they start cranking out in the 2040s. I know somebody who works at NASA and he is a creepy goth, to be fair. Oh, okay. so, and he listens to the podcast. So so it started already. They're, yeah, it's already. <laughs> it has begun. But yeah, like this, the design of the ship is super cool, but also super impractical. Like it makes no sense. We might be getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. It's weird. It's like a bat cave sometimes. It's just funny in retrospect that Paramount was like, ah, oh, man, Titanic's going to be trouble. Let's get Event Horizon out early. <laughs> yeah. We'll have money in the bank. We can lose a bunch of money on Titanic once Event Horizon hits and, and we're all millionaires again. Yeah. They're like, our bad. We fucked up. We tried to do Titanic. Let's, uh Let's give him Sam Neill with no skin on a spaceship. I mean, Titanic, in retrospect, was a very troubled production. If we ever did a series of movies that seemed like they were going to be bombs, but ended up being really successful, that would have to be at the top of the list because there was so much bad buzz around that movie. Oh, okay. And Event Horizon seemed like a sure thing, I guess. I don't think the studio expected 
expected the movie they got. We talked about this before. R-rated sci-fi horror. How big do you expect these things to go? They don't have a great track record, man. Like the list of movies we could cover on this podcast is full of R-rated sci-fi. Like, yeah, littered with the bodies of these movies. And I really enjoy them. So I hope they keep making that. I'm starting to notice a trend here. But they also have historically done well, I think, on home video. So maybe that's part of the equation. But now I don't know how that factors in anymore. You know, streaming's a whole nother story. Yeah. But the studio clearly was a little taken aback when they received the first cut of Event Horizon. I'm always a little wary of these stories of audience members fainting or like yeah. passing out, throwing up, whatever. It always seems like it might be made up to build buzz around the movie that it's like really traumatic. But then when the studio makes you cut it after that story, then maybe there's something to it. You always think, okay, is that a criticism or a brag? If you're making a horror movie and you like made people throw up, I don't know. Who are you inviting to your screenings? Stop feeding yeah. them shrimp cocktail before the screening. Room temperature. <laughs> shrimp cocktail <laughs> leftover catering go send that to the screening room those guys are probably hungry yeah. uh, and they're about to watch event horizon but yeah <laughs> we'll touch on it when it comes to the goriest parts of the movie i think we're going to agree that less is more in some yes. of these places and we are glad that we're not seeing extended versions of some of these scenes but it is interesting to speculate on what we are missing we know a little bit if you do some research you learn some of the scenes that we're missing i don't know that there's a big hole in the movie and that's why it failed. And if only they could have inserted the scene back, it would have all clicked. I think if you like this movie as is, you would have liked it with the extra stuff and vice yeah. versa. I don't think it really fundamentally changes the movie, but we both noticed things about the pacing and about how the story unfolds that maybe could have been handled a little better or a little tighter, given some more backstory. So I think it could have made it a slightly better movie, but I don't think it fundamentally makes it a different movie. I agree. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of plot, as we'll see when we try to summarize what happens. It's a movie about a crew of a ship, right? So every character has a little bit of story of their own. And those movies are difficult to get right where everyone feels real. And yet you don't feel overwhelmed, bumping from one character to the next, trying to pick up their story. I don't know if they succeed in making every character feel like a real person. There, there's at least enough of them that we actually end up giving a shit about that it doesn't just feel like bodies to be thrown into the hell pit. I actually think they did pretty well on that. And part of it is due to the cast is good and it's deep. Everybody's good actors all the way down. And so yeah. they do a lot with the little bits that they do get. You know, we just came from an ensemble isolated crew movie in The Thing. And in Jason X, to And be in Jason X, which is the opposite of this, which the, all the characters were ridiculous, idiotic cutouts. But right. like The Thing had a crew and that worked because they held back and people hardly said anything and you're just like, oh, these are just normal guys. This crew strikes a really fun balance. They each have some personality. They feel real and the actors are so good. I really liked all the characters in this. I just want to make a quick note that we did not plan to do all sci-fi horror for this month. It just kind of <laughs> happened. <laughs> Next yeah. October, we'll try to do a little more varied, but all these movies rule in their own way. Well, I don't know if Jason X rules, but it's fun to talk about. <laughs> it's fun to talk about. It's fun. We had a theme within a theme and it just landed on us. All right. You want to walk through the story of the movie? Sure. Let's take a look, see what happens in this thing. All right. It is the year 2047. The crew of the rescue ship Lewis and Clark is heading out on a mission to recover the long-missing spaceship Event Horizon, which recently reappeared in orbit around Neptune. Joining them is Dr. Weir, played by Sam Neill, who designed the Event Horizon's top-secret gravity drive, which can fold space and allow faster-than-light travel by way of another dimension. Captain Miller, played by Lawrence Fishburne, and his crew are not too receptive to Weir or his explanation of the implausible new technology. The last transmission from Event Horizon contained only some ominous garbled screams, and when they arrive at the ship, scans show only diffuse signs of life, so things are looking bad. They send a small team aboard and find just one dead crew member with his eyes gouged out. The engineer, Justin, checks out the gravity drive, which mysteriously powers up and sucks him inside. Cooper, the rescue tech, pulls Justin back out, but it causes a big shockwave, which damages the hull of the Lewis and Clark. The rest of the crew are all forced to take shelter on board the event horizon. There it is. Good setup for a movie. It's working for me. The ship looks adequately creepy and foreboding from space. Yeah, for it's got a like spaceship. kind of a weird yeah. crucifix shape to it. Crucifix shape. It's got these bat kind of wings that remind me of, I don't know, Romulan ships or something. I'm no Star Trek expert. I maybe mix No, I think you're right. That sounds right. Up. But it's got a little bit of edge to it and it's massive. And the way they come upon it in a thunderstorm, like it's fucking Dracula's castle, man. They are like. It really, yeah, it really <laughs> plays up that, that whole angle. <laughs> yeah, you thought you were on a spaceship. All of a sudden, you were on a horse drawn carriage riding hard through the Carpathian Mountains and all of a sudden Dracula's castle comes over the horizon and the lightning flashes and the thunder. It's so cool and spooky. Yeah, and we'll talk more about the actual set of the ship, but when you get on the inside, it is 
equally cool, equally foreboding. But first, let's start at the beginning with Dr. Weir. He's the, the character that is ostensibly our protagonist in the beginning. I got weird vibes from him right off the bat because he has slightly too many pictures of his wife. Yeah, it's not real happy in his little cabin there on the space station. And you say you get weird vibes. I get weird vibes from him. Is, is this oh coincidence that Here his name, go. every time I tried to type it, I typed the word weird and I'm like, whoa, they got me. The guy's weird. He is weird. And he's weirder than we could ever imagine. Like the pictures of his wife, there's just too many of them. I love my wife, but he has roughly 30 pictures of her and like all these weird cheesecake poses as if like oh, he's okay. a soldier yeah. off to war. And it makes more sense in context later, but I don't know if it was supposed to set off alarm bells, but it did. You know, it feels like an alien's idea of what a husband in space <laughs> would have of his family. It just, it set off alarm bells for me. He's troubled from the start. That's for sure. And we find out later why he's so troubled. A little more why. Something's off with this guy. He's in there alone. He's shaving in his mirror and it looks ominous already. Even when there's nothing directly telling us we should worry about this guy. I think they do trade on Sam Neill's likability, especially because think about it. It's 97, only a few years removed from Jurassic Park where he's everyone's hero. I think Paul W.S. Anderson's actually done interviews where he's owned up to this, that that's one of the reasons he liked Neil in the role so much is because audiences trusted him because that's where everyone had seen him most recently. And now they're using him as this agent of chaos later in the movie. That's funny. Maybe I'm weird, but I like distrusted him in Jurassic Park. I was waiting for him to be evil the whole time. Because he terrorizes a child with a fucking velociraptor claw. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe that's it. Because he's right a in dick. the opening. He's the dick in the beginning. The fucking then, asshole yeah, to this little kid. I think I never got over that. And also, I that's mean, fair. he has a good look for a villain. He has the eyebrows and the stern face. Oh, I find him much more interesting as a villain yeah. than as a hero in almost everything. But the movie's setting us up with he's going to be our POV. We're going to see the movie through his eyes and then, right. pun intended, and then, you know, it <laughs> takes a turn, obviously. But I did find it interesting. They, they said 2015 was the first permanent colony on the moon. That's pretty ambitious, knowing what we know now about how incompetent the world is. <laughs> yeah. Did they All really these... think that? We wonder. You watch sci-fi and you're like, they throw years out there and they're always just so... They've got high hopes for humanity that we're not going to live up to, man. Is that a thing that you do when you write a sci-fi script? I'm going to establish something really outlandish, some huge achievement achievement. And I'm going to set it 12 years from now because I want people to freak out about, oh my God, could this really happen? Are we going that far that fast? Is that why you write those dates or is it just people putting in numbers at random? That feels like if you were pitching a sci-fi show to Netflix, they'd put a note in like that. Make the future closer so that (laughs) there'll be tweets about it and we can engage in the discourse. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But at least like Jason X went 400 years in the future. Can you imagine? Are people going to be tweeting about it? They're like, it's Jason X day. I think in 400 years, the earth (laughs) will just be a lot shittier, but will still be here. You know, North America will be the size of Texas and everything else will be ocean. I I mean, in my mind, we were tweeting from Earth too. The earth was definitely abandoned at that point. Oh, you think by then we'll be (laughs) be moving on? Yeah. Jason X may indeed prove to be the most accurate and prophetic of the sci-fi genre. So Captain Miller, played by Lawrence Fishburne, let's get it out of the way. He rules. We love Lawrence in this movie. Oh my God. They call him Skipper too much though. Did you find it a little weird? I feel like they're trying to establish this crew's, you know, been together for a while and they have a rapport, but they say the word Skipper like 15 times in three minutes. I guess I didn't pick up on that. I was transfixed by him swiveling around in his little captain's chair, which has a really weird, funky design to it. This um, is his floating captain's chair? Yeah, it's this thing that cradles him, but it's not a big man-spreading captain's chair like Captain Kirk used to have. It's very narrow, so his feet are, are very tight together, and he's cocooned up in it and swiveling around and yelling at the crew. Interesting choice. Yeah, it looks like an uncomfortable video game chair <laughs> yes. is basically what we're looking at. One and half then- of one. One cheek's worth of chair. So once they get on the event horizon, we mentioned that the ship itself, very creepy, decorated in a very kind of gothic Art Deco style almost, mm-hmm. reminded me a little bit of like Tim Burton's Gotham. Okay, yeah. Uh, I got those vibes from it. But then when there's flashes of light and you see all the blood and bones on the wall smeared all over the ship, that was really cool because the crew hasn't wisened up to that yet. I thought that was a very cool visual trick to let us know how wrong things have gone before the characters are aware. It's definitely freaky, but they're still in there with that. Do they recognize it later? Because I feel like- They never really remark upon it. I feel like that might be a scene that was cut because you can't just have 
big splatters of blood and gristle all up these walls and not say anything about it because they're looking for people the whole time. They find one body. They're like, oh, where is everybody else? Well, guys, if you scrape that wall, you get two or three more people's worth of shit off of it. And I feel like that's in the bridge. It's in the main area where they spend most of their time. So that's right. The medical bay was another one of the locations that they keep coming back to, which had a really interesting look. It had these arched ceilings, sort of vaulted cathedral or crypt kind of ceilings. And instead of stone tiles, there were brushed steel tiles and some kind of red carpeting. It looked like a vampire nightclub to me. Like Blade was going to fall down and start (laughs) killing people any moment. That would have been one way to solve the problem. We do get our first whiff of bad special effects once they get on the ship too, because the gravity on the ship is turned off. So everything's floating around. Some of these floating effects are pretty dated. You notice this as well. I wonder if that has to do with the push timeline is that they like had to do the fast render on the CGI because yeah, it starts with these awesome shots and they built, you know, 40 foot versions of the actual spaceship. So the exteriors look killer. And then as soon as you go inside, there's like a floating lampshade and a book and it's like the crystal ball scene from the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. There's like trumpet floating around and they all look like cheap CGI. I know they didn't use like ILM or any of the big effects houses for this either. They use some smaller indie effects houses to keep costs down, I believe. So maybe they don't have the manpower for a time crunch like this movie needed. Yeah. But if I was a director and I saw that, I'd be like, you know what? That was a cool idea that we were going to have a lot of shit floating around because it would show that something bad happened in the ship. But you know what? Delete three quarters of it. I would have just thrown most of those shots out because they're not good. They really take you out of the movie for a minute. Yeah, they they don't add a ton. You can definitely remove those and it won't lessen the impact of when the arm floats by or whatever. Yeah. That's our little note for Paul W.S. Wait, are those his initials? Yeah, Paul W.S. Anderson, who, sorry to say, he's not a good director. Like, we're praising him a lot in this movie. This is by far the best thing he's ever made. Okay, Uh, I I really don't know his work. We'll get into it a little later where he went after this. But yeah, no, I'm not typically a big fan of his movies at all. I always forget he made this movie because it is good. So he's like punching above his weight in this one? Or, you know, maybe the studios hacked all his other stuff to shreds, but I somehow doubt it because he's made a bunch of movies by then. You would have snuck one good one through at least, right? You would think. So the meat grinder hallway is a thing I recognized as a Paul W.S. Anderson thing. If oh, you see really? the first Resident Evil movie, there's a scene in that that kind of reminds me of this a lot. Just like foreboding hallways seems to be one of his things. But that was a cool little effect. That took me back to my childhood. There's an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man that relies on one of those spinning things. That's when he meets the abominable snowman, I believe. <laughs> And he goes through an ice cave that's spinning around him like that. The and six million tr- dollar man sounds fucking goofy, Ian. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never seen it, but it's weird as hell. It was incredibly weird and goofy. Super <laughs> goofy 70s TV shit. But then they turned it into, at the original Universal Studios tour, they turned that set from that episode into a part of the tour. And the tram would drive you through that tunnel. And then they'd go, oh, no, be quiet. You're going to make an avalanche. And then an avalanche would happen. And then the walls would spin around you and you get real dizzy. And you'd be like, I'm just like Lawrence Fishburne in that movie that hasn't happened for 20 more years. I really want to go to Universal Studios. Would you be my guide if I came to LA? you show me sure, around? Sure, I would All love right. to. So they send Justin in to check out the gravity drive. Like this, what, 19-year-old kid who seems fresh out of military school? Yeah. The absolute greenest motherfucker they could find. But look at the most important thing on the ship by yourself. That seems like a good idea. The ship that is covered in blood and dead bodies with their eyes gouged out. Yeah. Just like Robert De Niro's going, yeah, go on down the hallway there. Go into the- I got some furniture for you. (laughs) Pick something out that you like. And he, unfortunately, he picks out the gravity drive or picks him out. Like He doesn't have the common sense that Lorraine Bracco had. No. Say no no thanks. I got to go. But yeah, he goes down there. It turns on as, of course- Shit, obviously, he's got to go wrong or it wouldn't be a horror movie. And then he's kind of sucked into it. All the lights come on, this black mirror puddle of quicksilver. Goo. And he goes up and touches it because he's young. He's or 19 do we, years old and an idiot. Do we give him some credit that maybe it's already taken over his mind? And- I assume he was drawn to it somehow. Yeah. yeah, there had to be some kind of pull there. If I walk into that room and see this fucking spinning ball covered in spikes, I'm running right back to Lawrence Fishburne and be like, we're in the wrong movie. We somehow ended up in Hellraiser. I don't know what happened. And we got to get out of here. <laughs> Just seeing the design of it, when the lights go on in that room for the first time and the camera pans over it, and it's the most arcane and spooky looking piece of high tech sci-fi equipment that you've ever seen. Like, What scientific reason could you possibly have for needing eight foot spikes all over the wall? Yeah. What is that doing? <laughs> 
creepy carvings <laughs> in bronze and weird finishes. Like some alarm bells should have been going off back on Earth. Hey, th- that Dr. Weird guy is making some weird shit. So should we check on him? He said he needs exactly 300 pentagrams in the gravity drive room. I don't know why. What does that have to do with science? Do we think weird is evil? By the way, from the get-go, I, I've wondered about this and I wanted to get your take on it. Did he know what he was bringing these people to or was he just going there as a scientist and then the ship corrupted him quickly because he already had kind of a bond with it? In my mind, he's partially corrupted. He's not purely evil. He's not fully playing a game with them when he gets on board. He still believes the outlines of his mission, which is that it's a rescue mission. And he obviously cares a lot about his technology and he wants to recover that. So I don't think he knows the full story, but I think that the mind that created that thing and tested it must have been somewhat corrupted by at that point. And that's my version of it. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a ton of hubris involved in his ambition, which it's a funny juxtaposition with his character from Jurassic Park, not to keep bringing that up, but who warned us about the dangers of like scientific overreach so fervently a few years prior. And now that's kind of his whole character is like, no, we can do anything with science. Yeah. Dr. Weir didn't stop to think whether he should. Right. Just whether he could. He definitely should not have. Do you want me to tell you why he should not have in more detail? Yeah, let's hear what else happened. All right. Cooper and the pilot Smitty. Love a pilot named Smitty, by the way. That's just a classic pilot name. Classic. They work on repairing the Lewis and Clark. Meanwhile, on board the Event Horizon, the crew members start seeing frightening hallucinations. Each person is haunted by a vision of something traumatic in their past and start to think maybe the ship is doing this to them. An unseen force pounds the door and the crew is freaking out, but Weir wants to open the door and let it in. The Exo Stark forcibly stops Weir, but just then, Justin wakes from his catatonic state and tries to kill himself by exiting through the airlock. He's seen something dark on the other side and can't take it anymore. Captain Miller just barely saves his life, and they finally manage to unscramble the final transmission of the original crew, and the video shows a horrific scene of sodomy, mutilation, and cannibalism. This is the last straw for Miller, who says they're going to leave for home on the repaired Lewis and Clark and blow up the event horizon. Dr. Weir, who's become increasingly attached to the ship, says he's already home and slips away. A lot of good moments in this section of the movie. This is, yeah, where the movie really shines, I think. Not the most enjoyable watch. You know, the lightest 35 minutes or whatever. Yeah, there's some rough stuff. I mean, we went through it with The Thing, and this is another movie that puts you through some shit. Yeah, they do not pull punches, or I guess they did, but the movie benefits for it with that fucking transmission of the previous crew. And it's juxtaposed with the wholesome footage of them when they're first on their voyage and they have this video of them chronicling the journey and everyone's getting along and having a fun time and then just the pure horrors you compare it to jesus christ stuff they show you in this it's like most of it's too quick to really comprehend exactly what you're seeing which is great exactly (laughs) i was gonna say we called it a horrific scene of sodomy mutilation and cannibalism because you kind of think that's what you just saw but there's literally like three frames of one thing and four frames of another thing it goes by really fast and that's part of what makes it horrific because i guess if in some ways it would be worse to see more of it but you might also start to see the, you know, the seams of the, yeah, the, the seams special of the, effects and yeah and because you just got a glimpse of it your mind fills in the blanks and it's really scary i know there are people out there that have taken screenshots of it frame by frame and post them on the internet mm, yeah i've um, those i did not look those up i would <laughs> recommend not looking them up everyone who's looked at them that i've read a synopsis of is like yeah you shouldn't do that so Proceed with caution if that's the route you want to go. Yeah, so that part's really scary. I would say the one part that falls a little flat for me is Justin, who we already talked about, is the fresh-faced kid. He comes out of his encounter with the other side, and he's fucked up. And you know it, and that's cool, because he's seen hell, and now he's catatonic for half of this. And then he comes awake and goes into the airlock and is said, I'm going to eject myself. But I don't know if it's the actor or the lines or how he was directed. I don't want to be mean spirited. Yeah, but I think it's the actor. I don't think I don't think Justin's actor is the strongest. Jack Noseworthy is his name. What a name. Yeah, Yeah, I, I don't think his deliveries were haunted enough to really get across how ruined his mind is at this point. Yeah, he kind of plows through this line. I wrote down the dark inside me from the other place. I won't go back there. I won't. Oh, hi, Mark. He doesn't actually say, oh, hi, Mark, at the end, but it feel it has that. that did not titter. It did not. It has that yeah. feeling of he just kind of plows through this line and he's supposed to be in a catatonic daze. But maybe if the line was better, I'm thinking maybe you could get a better version of it. The dark inside me from the other place. Like they're making him into a child. He's not a child. He's not like a literal child. Right, he's in the he's 
military. Young, young yeah, man. I um, guess we, yeah, it depends on whether you consider 18 year olds children or not, but yeah, he's at least old enough to be enlisted. And yeah. He's an engineer. He's not just a grunt either. Anyway, that part kind of falls flat. And also he does a weird emotional turn in that scene, not to spend a whole long time on the scene, which is not our favorite one, but he like, he's freaked out. He's I'm killing myself. I can't stand it. And then as soon as he does it for no reason, he flips and goes, oh, I certainly wouldn't want to kill myself. Please undo this. <laughs> and then he can, and then everyone's freaking out and crying. And See, I thought the movie was going in another direction when he has the change of heart, which would have been more in line, I think, with the movie's tone and would have worked better. I think this is fucked up, but it works better if he knows he's going to die, but the ship has possessed him and he starts pleading for his life, knowing that Miller can't save him just to fuck Miller up even more. That's kind of where I thought the scene was going to end up going. Oh, that's yeah. I got a chill when you said that. But no, it's just Justin snapped out of it and wants to live all of a sudden. Yeah. Is, it's a little anticlimactic. Which I guess, did they need to do that to motivate Miller? Because also this is a character moment for Miller who's outside and decides he's going to pull an act of heroism and save the kid on his crew because he's vowed to himself he'll never let another crew member die which doesn't work out for him in the end but he tries his best he tries what a, a ridiculous vow to make in the midst of this movie i'm sorry he, he tries and he actually saves the kid like you think the kid's going out and there's some common myth tropes about explosive decompression and how long people can survive in space and they don't really explode it's uh, longer than you think yeah he would have been fine for a couple minutes maybe is what i read it's not like an instantaneous thing like it's portrayed in a lot of movies so they kind of split the difference on this he's suffering he's bleeding out of his eyes but they do make it realistic that Miller dives to the rescue, throws him back inside the ship within a few seconds, and he saves the kid's life, which is a cool moment for Miller because it's teaching us that he's truly the badass, life-saving hero that he wants to be. It felt like something more would come of Justin in the movie, but that's just kind of it for him. Yeah, then he goes in the closet. He's like, oh, he's fucked up. Put him underwater in the stasis tank and let's not talk about him again. Yeah, like... He just kind of gets put on ice for the rest of the movie. I thought it would be cool if he was a double agent of hell, like he'd been there and now he's corrupted and he's sabotaging the crew. I've got a lot of ideas for how to improve this movie. You do. They should have brought you in to do a little rewrite. <laughs> what was I like eight years old when they wrote this movie? <laughs> I don't think I was quite this dark at that point. Not yet. But d did I miss here or does Weir say at some point there's nothing odd going on? <laughs> I swear I heard him say that line and I was like, there's no fucking way he just said that. <laughs> I think you're right. I think I laughed out loud at that because like we talked about in the first section of this movie, he's sympathetic. He seems like he's really the good guy and the protagonist. But as soon as he gets on the ship, he does a hard turn and he starts fucking with people and telling them their problems aren't real. And he's gaslighting people hardcore. Yeah, yeah hard. Yeah. So there's nothing odd going on as a particularly crude attempt at gaslighting. <laughs> the walls are smeared with <laughs> blood and guts and bones. How can you say that, you buffoon? Does he say that after something mysterious pounds on the steel door and bends it in? Yeah, it's after Justin tries to commit suicide. That's when Miller corners him and is like, tell me what's going on. One of my crew just tried to kill himself. But then Weir walks away and Miller literally hits him with the line, don't you walk away from me, mister. I was like, oh, I had a flashback of having a serious talk with my toddler. <laughs> he's talking to him like he's a child. Only Lawrence Fishburne can pull that kind of shit off. Right. He's got so much authority. Yeah. He, he owns it. Lawrence Fishburne, I mean, this is his section of the movie. He owns this section of the movie because after they see this horrifying unscrambled video, it would be so easy to be like, well, we got to figure out what made them do this. What caused right. them to lose their minds to this degree? We have to do some more digging. But no, it's just a hard cut back to his face and he goes, we're leaving. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And he starts packing up the crew. Get your shit. That's like a stand up and cheer moment. I was so excited. And it's really fun <laughs> for a horror movie that's going to take you to these really dark places. I just think that was really brilliant to put a character in here, have Lawrence Fishburne play him and make him really stand up for the audience. He is such a good audience surrogate. You trust him so hard, especially at this point. I mean, you've already earned some of your trust leading up to this. And then when he goes, we're leaving, it's like, fuck yeah, dude, get us the fuck out of here. We need someone right. to save us from this. I'd be happy if this was a 50 minute movie where they just get <laughs> back on the Lewis and Clark, leave Weir there and just, we're the fuck out of here. And then I know you loved his next line after that. Yeah. Weir follows him down the hallway. He's like, you can't just leave her. And Miller's like, I have no intention of leaving her doctor. I will take the Lewis and Clark to a safe distance. And then I will launch attack missiles at the event horizon until I'm satisfied she's vaporized. Fuck this ship. It's so fucking cool. They heaped double badass on top of the last helping of badass they served us. And it's just like so much fun. Yeah. It's such a logical response to these wildly illogical events that are happening. And that's what yeah. you need to stay grounded in a movie like this. So you don't end up hating all the characters for 
bringing it on themselves, you know, like you would see in a typical slasher movie where everyone splits up to search the ship. Yeah. And people do weird, creepy things, right? They're obviously under a ton of stress. They're easily led astray by these visions that the ship gives them. They do dumb things and they end up dying in some cases because they see a vision of a child and follow it off a cliff. Like dumb shit does happen to them, which you can't really blame them for. But it's just awesome to have one guy who's like, fuck no, fuck that. We're getting out of here and get on my back. I'm carrying us all out of here. Yep. All right. You want to walk us through the final act? Yes. As the crew prepares to leave the event horizon, medical tech Peters is lured to fall to her death by a vision of her son. Weir has a vision where he relives his wife's suicide, and then he gouges out his own eyes as he descends into madness. Then a bomb that Weir planted blows up the Lewis and Clark, killing Smitty. Smitty. Poor Smitty. Miller finds the mutilated body of the medic DJ and goes in search of Weir. Thanks to another heroic life-saving effort by Miller, Cooper and Stark survive a clash with the eyeless Weir and make it to the forward section of the event horizon, which they hope to use as a lifeboat. Another ghostly vision drives Miller back to the gravity core for a final showdown with a demonic, scarred version of Weir. Miller manages to detonate the explosive charges, disconnecting the sections of the event horizon, sacrificing himself as he and Weir and the gravity drive descend into a mini black hole. Cooper and Stark escape, and 72 days later, their lifeboat is rescued. But a chilling vision of Weir suggests the story may not be over. Don't forget Justin. He's still Justin there chilling with them in stasis. Is in a green suitcase on the wall. So I don't want to nitpick. Obviously, this is not a movie bound by reality in any way. But do they explain how Weir gets his eyes back? No, that was maybe another missing part. I mean, I'm willing to accept some supernatural explanation because obviously there's lots of supernatural shit going on. But it doesn't even offer any. Like, just, he, gouges, he gouges his eyes out. And that's a great visual moment. And it's very creepy and stuff. But then he's also very creepy in a completely different way, like 10 minutes later. But he looks nothing like, you know, I don't know. Just, yeah, because it wasn't like he needed. He was totally capable of being the force of evil on the ship without eyes. He had a gun and he knew where to point it and he was tormenting the other crew and he was fucking him up. And then in that scene with Miller and Cooper comes to the window, Weir ends up shooting out the window. So then we have one of those explosive decompression scenes and Weir ends up going out the hole, right? We're like, oh, we're done with that guy. And the explanation in the descriptions that people offer, because the movie doesn't really offer any, is just that, oh, the ship grabbed him out of space and, you know, dressed him up in Restored a new outfit. Restored him somehow, yeah. Restored him, put some new eyeballs in, fucked up his skin, took away his clothes, and threw him back on the ship. But they could have used something to connect the two. And you know what? Actually, I know that one of the deleted scenes involves after the wash of blood comes out of the stasis tank and comes down that hatchway and down the ladder, a naked Scarman Weir crawls down that ladder upside down head first. Yeah, spider. After them. Like exorcist style, which yeah. is horrifying to imagine. And maybe that's where he was first introduced. And then, so that's not in the movie. And mm. so when he first comes in, we recognize it as weird, but we're like, oh, well, he looks like a demon now, but were we supposed to understand how and why? No, we're not, I guess. But he had to lose his eyes or he wouldn't have gotten the iconic line where we're going. We don't need eyes to see, which is, you know, one of the great lines from this movie. Yeah, I think they brought in a young M. Night Shyamalan to punch up the script with some dialogue. And that was one of his gems. Yeah, not a fan of the <laughs> where we're going. We don't need eyes to see line. <laughs> That's so corny. If he was like a winking, darkly funny kind of demon, I would have got it. But he doesn't deliver it funny. So it's humor is lost. It immediately draws your mind to Back to the Future. Whenever you're saying where we're going, we don't need blank. Yeah. I, mean, I cannot hear that without thinking of... Christopher Lloyd. Exactly. So. It's a corny reference. And it's like, oh, well, why did he just say it like that? That's where the movie starts to sink in the third act for me. Too many weird corny lines happen. I'm like, what are you doing? You're fucking up my movie. I think at its heart, it's a B movie and it's not leaning out of being cheesy all the way. It's okay with kind of living in that space between like, this is a serious movie that you should take seriously and also being a little bit of a creature feature silliness. Um, yeah. It walks the line kind of between those two things to me. And I didn't write down any of the lines, but I feel like the end scene, there's the big show down Weir and Miller, and there's a lot of talking in that scene. Weir becomes the lecturing bad guy. The Bond villain. Yeah, and a lot of it's just really on the nose. Hell is just a word. The reality is much worse than you can imagine. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of good suggestive horror elements in the first half, and they get really on the nose at the end, and it's not as 
is cool when you just say it. I am the most evil thing in the universe or whatever. No, I agree. That's on the nose. But there is still some cool, horrifying stuff in this section, like DJ's death, which was yes. very hard for me to watch. <laughs> like, you don't see a lot of his death, but you see the aftermath. I appreciated the way they launch into it because Miller gets on the comm and DJ is his best buddy on the crew. Played by Jason Isaacs, we have to say, who is one of my top actors. Love Jason Isaacs. Yeah, really good. It's really fun to watch him do his thing. And Miller's like, okay, where's Gone Rogue? If you see him, fucking kill the dude. And DJ's like, you got it, bro. And he picks up a crazy, in a nod to Jason X, in a nod to our previous <laughs> episode we just did, he looks at this table full of autopsy weapons and includes a wicked bone saw. And he picks it up. He's like, no, I got it. If I see that guy, I'm going to fucking kill him. It's no and space he, machete, but it'll do. No, it's next best thing. Those won't be invented for another 400 years. But And then the minute he says that, he turns around and wears there and fucks him up. And that's, that was just a fun one of those gotcha moments. He, I mean, best case scenario, he had two more years at the rate he smokes cigarettes. <laughs> he wasn't going to live a long and fruitful life, but the guy was on edge. Disemboweled and then hung over the table, which is just pretty grisly. But we don't see it. We see the aftermath and we go, holy right. shit, that's what happened to him. I bet there was more footage that was cut. There is. Yeah. It's included in the list of deleted scenes. Okay. I don't deal well with like intestine horror for some reason. I really don't like disembowelment scenes. It freaks me out. So I'm glad we didn't get more of that. <laughs> yeah. I was lucky enough that I didn't even pick up on exactly. I saw that he was strung up in a crucified position hanging from the ceiling. His chest was splayed open and wires were pulling it open, had some Hellraiser vibe. Then, yeah, if you look at the table, all his stuff is on the table. So he cut him and then splayed him up like that. So everything just kind of fell out. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, he had fun. Where did he find the time to do all that? Right? Like It reminds me of that show Hannibal, where they would always have these super elaborate posed murders. Do you know how heavy dead people are? It must have taken you days. And well, you know, the demon Weir, I noticed that his main power is just that he's really strong. Yeah, he's super strong. When he faces down Miller in the end, he doesn't do a lot of demon stuff. He just kind of kicks his ass around the room. He shows him visions of hell is probably like his power. He can show you like what's happening to the crew. Yeah. And then he can smack the shit out of you. And that's another scene where we get like some really brief clips of what they're actually suffering through in hell. And it's pretty oh, okay. bad. Yeah. I think I closed my eyes. I can't even picture what those were. There's a lot of like spikes through mouths and, uh, you know, uh, hands being shoved down throats. I don't know. I remember fun. one of those from earlier on. Yeah, it's bad. He's in the middle of a bunch of fire. It's a very frantic end scene. It's very, it's yeah. a lot of tough stuff going on. The movie does feel a little rushed to me. And I don't think we needed 40 more minutes of this movie. And I don't think we needed a lot more violence or gore. I think we could have used a little more buildup and a little more separation between the acts of we're going crazy to being crazy. Yeah feels like a leap. It happens so quickly where he goes from, what's this guy really up to? Is he trying to sabotage this mission to he has no skin now and he's actively showing me visions of hell. It all happens a little too fast for my liking. When he's saying I'm at home, I'm not leaving this ship, he's already gone pretty far over. But what he's missing is that in between scene, we talk about this movie being an homage to The Shining. There's that missing part where Jack is half corrupted and in the pocket of the spirit of the hotel. and Like the bar scene? The bar is scene is what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. And so and maybe- Is that hit the scene with his wife? Maybe. He maybe that's what they it, were trying to achieve there. But yeah, I don't feel like he's far gone enough at that point. They take a detour in the wrong direction during that last sequence, which makes it feel like he went too far too fast because he's pretty much gone. He's in the dark in the hallway with Miller and Miller's like, you're going to be walking home. And he's like, I am home, buddy. And he backs up into the shadows and it's really ominous. Oh, buddy. <laughs> he talks like that. You know how Sam Neill is. And so you're like, okay, he's fully gone. He's a fucked up dude. And yet then the other character sees her son and falls off the thing. And he comes into the gravity drive room just after she's fallen to her death. And all of a sudden he's really sympathetic to her. Like, well, I thought he was already evil in league with the demons, but he sees her and he's like, oh no, Oh, what happened to you? I'm so sorry. So is that a moment where you're supposed to recover his humanity momentarily? Because then just after that, he goes into the whole vision of his wife, which drives him into madness and his eyes come out. So right. it, it backs up for a second. And so it doesn't feel like a straight path where he's just ramping and ramping into evil. I mean, it, it feels like something that maybe could have been fixed in the editing room too, but they didn't yeah. have the time to do it. And then the movie That's ends true. with the weirdest little techno spooky song I've ever heard. <laughs> it's so out of place, right? It sounds like a leftover from the Mortal Kombat 
Kombat soundtrack. As soon as I heard this weird music come on, I'm like, oh my God, it's another one of those directors that has a thing for a certain kind of music. And they're just like, my movie, credits come on, I'm playing my fucking tune. That's right. And we saw that with Barry Sonnenfeld in the Adams Family. <laughs> like he, he loves his cheesy bubblegum hip hop. And this guy loves the prodigy. So he called them up. Did you see that the song is co-written by the Beastie Boys? No, I didn't notice that. That's interesting. Does it sample the Beastie Boys? And they had to give him like a, a song. Maybe that's credit? why. I didn't even listen yeah. to it long enough. I only listened to it long enough to ridicule it because it very much takes you out of the movie and back to 1997. It really does date it. Yeah. The movie feels pretty timeless up until that point, which, yeah. you know, when you're setting a movie in the future, it's easy to do as long as the effects aren't overly cheesy. Yeah, it looks good. And so, yeah, you but go with it. The song, yeah, clearly has a time and place. Yeah. But let's talk about the ending a little bit. How did you interpret this? Do you think they're in the clear, but they just have the most severe of PTSD? Or do you think something else is going on still? You know, I came full circle on this because the innocent in me wanted to believe that they were safe. And it does a little fake out. It's like, oh, they're rescued. And then she sees Weir's face, but then she screams and, oh, it wasn't really Weir. She just had a bad dream. And so I'm like, oh, yes, they are saved. And then the hatch closes ominously. And I'm like, oh, but no, they were probably okay, right? I lived with that version of it in my head for 24 hours. And then I came back to it. I'm like, no, they're fucked. The evil obviously came back with the ship and everyone in the world is fucked. That's my version. You're probably right. But I choose to believe that Justin is irreverably screwed. Like he's going to be somebody that lives the rest of his life in a padded room. And they look at him through a little keyhole and slide food under his door once in a while that he doesn't eat. As far as Stark and Cooper, Cooper really wasn't exposed to too much of the horror. He was kind of apart from it. So I wonder if he's okay. I think Stark, I mean, the vision is pretty clear that she's too far gone. She's it's in her head. It. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, She's going to be messed up. So maybe Cooper gets a happy ending is how I came away from it. But he's the only one that even has a shot. I like that. I like that for Cooper and I like that for you and me. Yeah. I wish it was true for Stark. She's a good character. I liked her. She's very capable. Most of the crew is, honestly. Smitty's the only one who's a little surly. But you know, that's what you want from your pilot. Yeah, he's surly, but you end up loving him because he cares about the ship and just getting shit done. And Justin would have been likable if they'd cast a better actor. And just not made him be such a, a what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a noob. It's a knave. A knave. A knave. I don't, there's no word. I'm not. I'm looking for a word that doesn't exist. He's got like a babe in the woods there thing going go. on that is not desirable in this setting. Yeah, he calls his other crew member Mama Bear, and she calls him Baby Bear. It's very infantilized. Yeah, that's weird. She's <laughs> 10 years older than you, dude. Get your shit together. <laughs> so... This movie came out, obviously a big flop. Let's talk about what happened to Anderson after this, because this movie flopped, but I wonder if the studio cut him some slack, considering the pressure they put him under to get the movie turned in on time. Yeah, I wonder if you get slack or if they just go, oh, sorry, we fucked you, but you're fucked. Especially because he made them a bunch of money with Mortal Kombat, which video game movies still don't really have a good track record to this day. Mm -hmm. And he managed to turn one into a, a pretty bona fide hit. Maybe he had a little more rope. So he turned out, like we said, he turned out the chance to write the first X-Men movie. That kind of kickstarted where we're at in movies right now. It yeah. showed that like superhero movies could be somewhat mature and serious and make money real money. And it became this huge industry that we're, we're still feeling the effects of now. So if he handles that over Brian Singer, who a uh, bad human being, bad person, yes. but as a director, much more of a mature drama focused guy brought those sensibilities to X-Men. I wonder if Anderson does it. The course of movie going could be changed hugely. Yeah. You just <laughs> invented a sci-fi movie right there. What if what what if Paul W.S. Anderson directed the X-Men movie and it flopped or everyone hated it and we'd be living in just a never world. got to this whole boom. It'd be all Westerns for the last 20 years. Right. All into like the Western <laughs> cinematic universe. I think we still get the superhero boom eventually, but maybe it's delayed or maybe it manifests in a different way. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting to think about though. So even before he signed on to Event Horizon, he had agreed to direct the Kurt Russell sci-fi action movie Soldier. Interesting thing about Soldier, written by the same guy that wrote Blade Runner and he intended for them to be taking place in the same world. Oh, cool. Soldier sucks, though. Oh, <laughs> shit. Russell wanted to bulk up for Soldier to be, you know, big swole dude. So Anderson made Event Horizon. In the meantime, they both bombed. Soldier bombed even worse than Event Horizon did. That mm. could be a future episode for sure. So after that, he kind of lost his blank check, so to speak. Yeah. And he had dreamed of making a remake of Death Race 2000, the old cheesy, was it 70s movie, I think it was? 70s or 80s? That might be even too old for me to know about. Yeah, I've never seen the original, but it was put on hold. Let's say they said, we, we got to see something else for me first before oh. we give you the, the money for this. So then he directed a TV movie, which also functioned as a backdoor pilot called The Sight 
but it didn't get picked up for series. But I don't think it did terribly. People didn't hate it. So he got a little bit of faith back in him. And then he made Resident Evil, which would go on to define his life and career from there because he would be involved in the Resident Evil series. Met his wife, Mila Jovovic, making it. Oh, okay. I didn't know and, the connection. Yeah, they're still married to this day. He directed that movie Monster Hunter that came out in 2020, okay. which she was a star of. Hard to say if that did well or not because it came out during COVID. So numbers are all weird. I think I watched two minutes of it on streaming yeah, it before I passed. <laughs> he also made Alien vs. Predator. A movie that people don't like very much and neither do I, but it made a little bit of money. And then he finally got to make Death Race in 2008. Did not do well. Was a critical failure and a commercial failure. He's made a few more bombs outside of the Resident Evil series. Aside from that, he made Pompeii, which will definitely be a future episode. I think that was like 2014, maybe. Big bomb that did not do well. But he always goes back to the Resident Evil movies when he needs a movie to make a little bit of money, get a paycheck. And he says he's done with them now, though. I think that's true. I think they're not making any more of those. So interesting to see where his career will go from here. It's nice to have a thing like that you can ride for a while. I think he made four or five of them. The screenwriter was Philip Eisner. But apparently his script was very different from what we got. Anderson okay. rewrote huge chunks of it. It was going to be like a tentacled alien that came through the dimension and stalked everyone on the ship. So that sounds like a worse movie, right? Or at least just a less original movie. We got to give Anderson a lot of credit then for taking this hard in the gothic direction. Yeah. Eisner, he's written some other stuff like The Mutant Chronicles, which was a huge bomb. And he wrote a movie that came out pretty recently, Sweet Girl, which was a Jason Momoa straight to Netflix movie. I think like 2019. But it was one of those like this man lost his family. Now he has to go back to his old ways to get revenge type of movies that come out every so often you know sure. like death wish but updated yeah and he teaches screenwriting at ucla so that's where oh. he's at the movie only took 10 months from green light to completion green light not from production it's that's crazy, crazy. <laughs> once you learn that you got to give everybody just so much more credit but especially the director who has to be involved in every part of that from getting the script right to the casting to overseeing the production design then filming it and then editing it which we know he did on a, just a crazy schedule it's actually wildly impressive how few corners are visibly cut in this movie nothing got thrown out the window there might be some faults to it but it's not like a train wreck that barely stitched together it's like a real movie yeah may maybe that's the secret to Paul W.S. Anderson having a successful movie is or at least a good movie because it didn't make <laughs> but is put him under pressure, you know? It is one way to produce good creative work is just you can't stop and slow down and fuck with things. You got to just plow. I did love that. If you pull up Paul W.S. Anderson on Wikipedia, the first thing it says at the top is a little note not to be confused with Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and I was like, did Paul Thomas Anderson write that? That feels like a note that he added one night watching <laughs> Resident Evil 6 or whatever. And he's like, okay. fuck this. I'm tired of this. I remember a time when the disambiguation was necessary in popular culture, like when both of them were being talked about. It's like up and coming. Yeah, they came out around the same time. I mean, okay. Hard Eight was like the mid 90s. And that was when Mortal Kombat came out. That would make so. sense then. And yeah, after that, I'm like, I've heard of PT constantly. And I haven't heard this guy's name come up in a long time. Yeah. Now, are you a Warhammer guy, Ian? I, I don't want to insult you, but I feel like I get vibes like you might be. No, but maybe I should be. It's very dense. And I don't really understand it, but it's this long running sci-fi series that is inhabited by many different writers and mediums, you know, tabletop okay. games and video games. I had played a video game, an MMORPG based on Warhammer years and years ago. I see. But I guess some fans like to think of this movie as having taking place in the Warhammer universe because there is some overlap with the idea of the gravity drive and a plot device in Warhammer called the warp. I guess there's a lot of similarities between them. Yeah, it's the idea that you can do high-speed travel through space, but uh, the in-between parts is inhabited by demons and you might get possessed. Yeah, that's kind of the basis of a Stephen King short story, too. I thought of that story. It's called The Jaunt, I think. The Jaunt, yeah, that's a very yeah. good story. That is a kick-ass story. That story stuck with me since my teenage years when I first read that collection that I was in. That ending. It's, it's something else, man. Yeah. This movie and this story has these great bones, right? It's got smart concepts. And we love that. I think something we've discovered this month being horror month, but also very much a sci-fi month, is how much of the enjoyment of sci-fi is the intellectual pleasure of a cool concept and seeing it executed and seeing it play out. Uh, yeah. And I've said it many times about other movies and other genres, but I think it applies even more so to science fiction that I'll follow the rules of your movie. If you do, you know, uh -huh. have your own internal logic for how things work in this world. And I will believe you. And that's one thing I think Event Horizon does well. It doesn't break its own rules. And the thing certainly didn't. And that's really the key to having an enjoyable sci-fi movie. It doesn't have to be the most sound scientific information in the world. Obviously this deals with a literal port of the hell, yeah. but it just makes sense on its own terms. And that, that makes it fun. And it, it doesn't get me in my own head thinking about 
how does this actually fit within the story? It's good. And it's actually, it's a little risky to do a movie that's based, especially in the first half on visions, because it takes a while as a viewer to figure out, well, are these supposed to be real? Are these real manifestations? You know, are they ghosts? Are they real things? So there's some of that that you have to hash out, but the movie handles it fine. You end up swallowing it and not choking on any of those pieces and not freaking out. Like, why did that lady's kid show up under the tarp? And did she really see that? That's creepy man. I don't like scenes of, first of all, kids are just creepy. Yeah, sad-eyed kids with sunken eyes and gross, bloody lesions on their legs. There's going to be maggots on his legs originally, and that was one of the things they had to cut. I heard that. <laughs> but yeah, that evokes some sixth sense kind of creepiness of sad-eyed ghost kids. But like the slow unzipping of the tent, I, that was probably the most afraid I was in the whole movie. I think I- I don't know yeah, why. I think I closed my eyes for that. I think I did too. So there's been a lot of talk about maybe getting a director's cut of the movie with some of this unused footage that they could put back in. Let's talk about some of the unused footage. So there is more backstory for Justin where they explain him going into the black hole a little stronger, which is one of your quibbles. So that makes sense. They were aware that wasn't as fleshed out. There was some more explanation about the actual gateway itself, which I don't know if the movie benefits from that. I don't know. They feel like they talked about it from the scientific standpoint. They talked about it. And then I didn't feel like there was anything I needed to know that it didn't give me a little version of. Yeah. And most of the rest of stuff is just longer versions of scenes we already got or bloodier versions of scenes we already got. More shots of the crew being tortured during Weir and Miller's final fight. Yeah, we know we don't need that. Don't need that. A longer version of the scene where Miller finds DJ's dead body. We don't need that. No. Longer versions of the unscrambled video. Don't need that. A bloodier version of Claire's suicide. Don't need that. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. But people still are scrambling for a director's cut. Unfortunately, it's probably not going to happen because most of the unused footage was stored in a Transylvanian salt mine, if you can believe that. I mean, that's where I keep my family photos. It's pretty darn safe most of the time. You would think so, but no, the, the film was ruined mostly. Some of the other film was stored elsewhere and they just never wrote down where. So nobody really knows where it is. They might uncover some reels of oh, wow. Event Horizon footage one day. And there is a VHS tape of the original cut, but that's not good enough to be distributed, obviously. It's unfinished. And Paul W.S. He hasn't even seen it yet. Yeah, I saw that part of the story. It doesn't even make sense. There's a tape and my friend has it, but it's been 10 years and I still haven't bothered to watch. Like something doesn't add up in that story. Something doesn't add up. I mean, <laughs> you know how easy it is. You buy a little machine, put your VHS tape in, upload it to your computer. You can email it to all your friends. Yeah. Watch it in the comfort of your home. Imagine then on top of that, if you were a Hollywood producer that had that tape, how hard would it be for you to do right. get it digitized for you? But <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm picturing assistance in Hollywood now. It's striking me that if this weird movie out of the 90s is stored in a Transylvanian salt mine like this must just be a thing i'm picturing the guy who goes to work mom dad i got an internship at the big studio in hollywood oh what's your job well most of them calling transylvania all day and shipping cartons of film to them but a weird part of hollywood <laughs> how many stamps do you need to send reels of film to transylvania it's got to be expensive right i mean i assume it the last 10 miles are on ox carts so let's wrap up like we always do trying to figure out why this movie failed we've already kind of posited that sci-fi horror that's rated r is a tough sell you know yeah historically it's just Not done great, but this movie did get released at kind of an odd time and had some serious competition. Did you take a look at kind of what else was out this week? No. Tell me about what was it up against? So it opened in fourth place. The other big release that week was Copland, a movie I've espoused my love for on this podcast. Yeah, you brought it in to show and tell. I did. So this opened at fourth with 9.5 million. Copland, it wasn't a big gap between first and fourth. Copland only had 13.5. So they were kind of in the same ballpark. Air Force One was in its fourth week and still pulled second place with 12.3. And then Conspiracy Theory was in its second week with 12.3. Those all sound like decent competition for Event Horizon. They're all aimed at adults. They're all relatively serious movies. You know, I could see a lot of the Event Horizon audience being drawn to those. Maybe not sci-fi horror fans as much. But if you look at the marketing for this movie, it's marketed much more as a sci-fi movie than a horror movie. Then Spawn was in its third week and finished in fifth. Spawn is a direct competitor for Event Horizon, I believe, because it's a horror sci-fi superhero movie. Yeah, totally. And then the next week... Guillermo del Toro's first English language movie would debut Mimic, an R-rated sci-fi horror movie. So right then you're kind of pulling the legs out from under Event Horizon and splitting the audience. Mimic also rules, by the way, and bombed. So we'll add that to the list for for next October, maybe. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I like del Toro and I haven't seen that. Good movie. So yeah, it would fall to seventh and never really recover. You know, we harp on movie release dates a lot, but it matters. Yep. 
what else is out at the time, especially back then, there wasn't as much buying tickets weeks in advance for new releases. It was more you wake up, call movie phone, see what's in the theater and go to the theater. If you're listing all those movies one by one, you're probably not going to see Event Horizon unless you're like really into the genre. You know, what comes to mind now, just as we're talking about this is besides the date, it's the title in an era when you don't have that much info. Like you said, it's easily mistaken for a pure sci-fi, which is going to just not leave you with a good impression if you went in hoping for a for a 2001 type movie. Saint that. And Event Horizon is a cool sci-fi thing, but I don't know. There's The word hell should be in the title of this movie probably somewhere to drum up the people who want to see some hella shit. Oh man, it's been a while since we did the movie title game. We should have brought should, some for this one. We should have brought some authentic ones, some genuine attempts to better this title because it's not a bad title. It's interesting. It's just not descriptive and it doesn't tell you much about the movie. No, it's, it's pretty neutral. Like a Horizon is a solid flat thing in the distance that does not fuck with you. And this movie is a thing that gets in your face and fucks with you hard. So I think it's trying to be a little elevated to where you don't want to call it like visions of hell, you know, like at least something like that would give you more of an idea about what you're in for. Yeah. They could have gone really saucy and B movie with the title and probably found more of an audience because they found that on home video, right? The people who love gory, freaky, scary movies found it, but they just didn't find it when it was in the theaters. Yeah. Just missed it by that much. Did you want to give us a lovely summation of your thoughts on the movie <laughs> and kind of wrap us up? Man, I'm tired, but I just had a f- one thought <laughs> for this. It's the same thing we've been saying. The movie's not bad. It's pretty good. Has some flaws, has some bumps in the road. It does not deserve to suffer the eternal damnation of bad box office, which it got. I like the setup of this movie better than the payoff. I was really excited. I'm not like a serious movie watcher. I turned it on on my tablet. I watched the first 20 minutes. And I went, Ian, you're the co-host of a movie podcast. I know, but I'm just a person. I am just a demon, as they say, with thoughts and feelings. And right. so I put this movie on and I got really geeked up the first 20 minutes. I messaged you. I'm like, dude, I'm so excited for the rest of this movie because I got to the spaceship. I'm like, it's a cool fucking spooky haunted house in space. I love it. And then the second half certainly has some cool moments and some punch, but I, I was worn down by the end. And I was like, oh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be in the first half hour. So that's just enough to, like you said, in a crowded field, a misleading title. Maybe the marketing just wasn't on point. And that's enough to let the air out of a movie. Yeah, I pretty much agree with your take. I believe it was Roger Ebert that said the movie has a great sense of foreboding and even a good sense of afterboding, but not enough actual boating. It's a little underwhelming when the shit starts to really hit the fan for the crew that we're with. You know, all the visions of what happened to the previous crew is presented really well and it's very haunting, but the stuff with our personal crew when everything starts going so bad was a little underwhelming. And I feel like the movie could have used more time to build that up. But when you consider the tremendous pressure that people were under to get this movie made and and done and out the door, it's a pretty remarkable accomplishment, especially, and I'm not trying to pick on him, but when you look at the rest of Anderson's filmography, this really is an outlier to me of just a smarter movie than I've ever seen him make. But I dig this movie and I will come back to it. Probably not tomorrow. Probably not even next year because it's a tough watch. Uh But in a few years, I'm sure I'll get the itch to fire up Event Horizon again. Yeah, I know what you mean. I don't know how quickly I'll come back to it, but I do have good feelings towards it. And I would tell someone if you like certain kind of horror genre stuff, you could really get into this. I think if you like the thing, you'd probably like this movie. It's not on that level, to be clear, but it's that same kind of slightly smart sci-fi that surprises you with how horrifying it can truly be (laughs) thank you so much for listening everybody Uh, please remember to rate review subscribe to the pod follow us on twitter at blastzonepod send us an email blastzonepod at gmail.com send us you know a trick or treat send us some candy some candy in the mail but make sure it's individually wrapped because I don't trust (laughs) you guys that much we will be checking we're we're definitely going to be going through them we're doing a fun one next week bending the rules a little bit it's not exactly a bomb more of a disappointment but we really wanted to talk about it so we're doing Cabin in the Woods to cap off Blastober. Yeah, exciting way to wrap up the month. Absolutely. So tune in for that, and I'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. This